English Heritage operates the London Blue Plaque Scheme, installing these blue ceramic plates, commemorating the sometimes grand, but often really rather humble, homes, buildings, studios, workplaces, associated with the lives of notable artists, scientists, musicians, activists, and politicians. This is a copy of the blue plaque for Vincent van Gogh. The real one is approximately double this size and proudly fixed to the wall of 87 Hackford Road in Brixton, where since 1973 it has consistently been one of the most visited of the 950 or so such sites across Greater London. The requirement for installing a blue plaque on a building is that it must have been closely and personally associated with a notable individual while they were alive. And that individual must have been dead for more than 20 years. And so today, these blue plaques are a visible history of London, helping to connect the physical buildings that we see all around us today with the remarkable people and historic events which are associated with them. And from Van Gogh to Freddie Mercury, these buildings marked with plaques often go on to become hugely popular tourist attractions, each marking the place where someone who is now dead used to live. But our reading this morning opens with Bethany being uniquely and miraculously described as the place where someone who used to be dead is now living. John 12, verse 1. Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, Bethany is casually identified in a single, almost throwaway sentence as the place not where someone now dead used famously to live, but where Lazarus, who used to be dead, has now become famous for living. It's a verse then that turns the idea of a blue plaque, indeed our very idea of life and death, upside down. Verse 1 again, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. This is such a remarkable sentence, such a remarkable truth, that a celebration is being held in Jesus' honor, hosted by Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, who are, between them, the first to fully know and personally experience Jesus' power to raise the dead to life. And between them, at this gathering, we see a range of reactions to this life-restoring miracle. Firstly, in verse 2, we find dear, faithful Martha, once again serving just as industriously as she did in Luke chapter 10. And perhaps works of service are the response many of us would make to the news that Jesus had raised our own brother or sister from the dead. We roll up our sleeves and get to work, loving and serving Jesus, our friends, our family, even strangers in any practical way we can. Hosting this dinner to honor Jesus is Martha's act of worship 
And this morning, we recognize and applaud all those who, like Martha, serve teas and coffees after the service, who greet us at the door, who are pressing buttons up on the gallery, who work unseen throughout the week on the premises, or staff any of the many activities that happen here. Next, we see Lazarus himself, now not just alive, but eating and drinking beside Jesus at the table. And like Mary in Luke 10, John records that Lazarus, rather than serving, simply wants to spend time with Jesus, to listen and to learn from this rabbi to whom he owes his life. And our response to Jesus, like that of Lazarus, is often to come together on a Sunday to just spend time in God's presence, to meet with God in prayer, to lift our voices together in praise, and to listen to his word. Which brings us to verse 3 and the response of Mary, which is more intimate, more emotional, and perhaps more surprising than the others. Verse 3 again. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary's response is without self-consciousness or shame to throw not just herself, but a whole pint of nard, all that she possessed of this most precious of perfumes, and pour it out at Jesus' feet, worth at least a year's wages in value, tens of thousands of pounds in today's money, of this most rare, most treasured of fragrances. A commodity that should only have been used very sparingly, just a single drop, and even then only ever to anoint the head of an honoured guest. But in her overwhelming passion, this precious nard is poured out with liberal abandon over Jesus' feet and breaking every cultural taboo. Mary doesn't just uncover but lets down her hair and uses it to wipe the dust and perfume from Jesus' feet. Charles Spurgeon describes what she does as the deed of a soul all on fire, the deed of a woman filled with deep devotion and reverent love, deep and burning love released as immediate action. And the only action that Mary can think of that can properly express her love and her gratitude that her brother is alive is to pour out everything that she has, all of her love, all of her worship, all that she possesses in an immediate overflow of joyful praise and gratitude at Jesus' feet. And the end result of all this worship is the release of two fragrances. The first is the beautiful aroma of nard, which John observes in verse 3. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Fragrance, remember, in the Bible is often used to represent the tangible, lasting, but otherwise invisible effect of precious, passionate acts of faith, love, and gratitude. Mary's actions at the feet of Jesus leave a lingering, fragrant impact that spreads out and disperses out the whole house, and so in turn do our acts of worship, love, and gratitude today. The result of genuine faith and true love lingers in the holy, fragrant impact that Christians leave behind them, 
a loving, gracious, generous, joyful attitude of gratitude that can be discerned, discerned as distinctly as a fragrance and disperses just as far and as wide. It is a scent every bit as real and lasting as that of Mary's nard, the same fragrance which is starting to fill the church this morning. The scent of kings, the aroma of temple worship, the perfume of love, and the scent of gratitude which filled a house in Bethany 2,000 years ago, the house where the dead man lived. It is a scent that we can experience for ourselves and pour out for others in authentic worship, loving service, and in genuine fellowship here in church and in our homes. But then there is one last character in the story who brings with them a very different and less welcome, less fragrant odor, verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Judas, it seems, is one of those people who know the price of everything and the value of nothing. And, he is in, and as he's introduced into this story, a stench of legalism emanates from his words and actions that threatens to pollute the sweet fragrance of Mary's worship. At first, Judas seems to have a point. Mary's act was not efficient, reasonable, or rational. But we must also interpret Judas's words in the light of an extraordinary note that John gives us regarding Judas's dishonest character. Verse 6, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. You see, rather than honest generosity, Judas's motive is revealed to be, at best, virtue signaling, and at worst, a brazen attempt to steal the valuable nard for himself. And John's words help us understand Judas's motives, both in Judas's words here, but also in his actions in betraying Jesus in just a few days' time. Once again, as he did in Luke 10, Jesus defends Mary's actions and recognizes her sincere act of worship for exactly what it was. This perfume was to have been reserved for after Jesus' death, which only Jesus knew would be in a couple of days' time, just one week. But Jesus also knew that like Lazarus, he would not be dead for long. And so he welcomes Mary's outrageous, generous, and heartfelt action, her act of worship while he is still alive. But finally, in verse 9 to 11, we read that just like the marking of a property with a blue plaque, the place where the dead man is living has become quite the tourist attraction. Verse 9, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were coming over to Jesus and believing in him. John makes clear the chief priests are already scheming to kill Jesus. But now, because crowds of people are flocking to see where the dead man lives, they plan to kill Lazarus as well for the second and hopefully final time. For the crowds just keep coming 
and coming. I mean, if there was a house in Linfield where someone who was dead was now living, blue plaque or not, I think we would all at least pop round to take a look. There would, as there was in Bethany, be a huge crowd. There would be traffic chaos with people flocking to Linfield from far and, and wide. And yet here we are this morning in Linfield, not just telling a story from long ago about Mary, Martha and Lazarus in Bethany, because there is a house in Linfield where those once dead are alive today. Our church is not some blue plaque historic landmark pointing to a man who died 2,000 years ago. And while we proudly display our eco-church and child-friendly plaques, they are not what defines us or makes this building special. But rather, this church is a house where people who were once dead are living. Isn't it? Isn't it so much more than a building? I hope you agree because that's not just our sermon in a sentence this morning, but that is the gospel in a sentence every morning. This is a house where those who were once dead are living. In Revelation 1.18 we read, I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. We were dead and now we are alive. Pat, you were dead, and now you are alive. Betty, you were dead, and now you are alive. Paul, you were dead, and now you are living. Knowing, experiencing, witnessing to, and owning this amazing life-giving and death-defeating truth for ourselves, what is to be our response? What reaction of love and worship like Mary do we each pour out this morning because of the new life that we each enjoy, the hope that we all possess? Lord, may our worship be commensurate with the overflowing and overwhelming truth that we who were once dead are alive, and each of our brothers and sisters here this morning are truly alive today only because of you. Like Mary, may we hold nothing back in our worship. May our response of praise and love overflow. May the fragrance of our gratitude and joy fill this place. May people come from far and wide to experience the perfect perfume of the loving presence of God's risen people. May they come to see the house where those who were once dead are living and may they come to know that life for themselves. For just as sure as the rotten stench of Judas's legalism and virtue signaling repels, so the truth and love and joy and hope of Jesus Christ leaves a lingering perfume that attracts and that transforms. Our broken, suffering and struggling world reeks of death but recognizes God's faithful people when those who were once dead come alive because that life smells so amazing, so precious and so beautiful and so different. 
At the moment of the dinner honoring Jesus, the description of Bethany as the place where the dead man was living was unique. But just a week later, each and every one of us died along with Christ. And on Easter morning, we each celebrate not just Jesus' return from the grave, but his triumph on our behalf over sin and death. Because in Ephesians 2 verse 4 we read, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. He is alive. He is risen. And so we who were once dead are also fully and eternally alive. And if that's not yet true for you personally this morning, but you feel you want to live fully and fragrantly, then please do speak to someone after the service. This morning, this Easter season, and each and every day to come, may this church be known as a place where those who were dead are now fully and fragrantly living. May the aroma of our worship reflect the awesome wonder of the miracle of resurrection life and the hope that is ours, such that the fragrance of our gratitude fills not just this room, but floods out from here. For those in church this morning, I hope you can smell the nard being diffused as we're surrounded by that same fragrance that John recorded filling the house in Bethany. But what I really hope you can smell is the same love, the same joy, the same gratitude, and the same worship that also filled that house. For right here is also a place where you will find those who were once dead living today. Whoever you are, and wherever you might be watching or listening to this, when those who were once dead come alive, our witness is unimpeachable, and the fragrance of our worship unmistakable to a world looking for and needing the truth and hope of the gospel. And each and every one of you smells uniquely amazing. Amen.